Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, July 9th, and today we're talking big banks. That's right, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo. We'll be diving into what investors need to know about how each of these banks operate, what to watch for, and really how the banks stack up valuation-wise. And this is all ahead of earnings slated to begin later this week. I'm your host, Shannon Jones, and I'm joined via Skype by our financial specialist slash guru, Matt Frankel. Matt, great to be in the studio with you today. Always good to join you guys. Awesome, awesome. So before we dive into the four big bank stocks, let's actually set the stage, Matt. Um, Let's talk about, in a very broad sense, how banks make money and uh, why it's important to understand this. Sure. Well, there's two kind of broad categories of how banks make money. The first is uh, commercial banking, which at its core is just kind of the savings and loan type bank of loaning out customers money, charging interest and kind of making a profit from the cost of money to you and the cost of money to the customer. Kind of the the margin. That's where uh, commercial banks get their profit margins. On the other hand, you have things like what are what are known as investment banks which deal with kind of mergers and acquisitions. They advise on IPOs and equity and debt underwritings and kind of uh, also deal with the wealth management side of the business. So those are kind of two broad baskets that you could put banks in. And because these are the big four banks, they are by far the largest four banks in the US. Um, Three out of the four deal with both of these to one degree or another. it's kind of important to know the distinction just because both have their own risk factors, which we'll get into in a little while, and both have kind of their own kind of makeup in terms of profit margin, uh, what's expected, what's considered good, what's considered bad, um, how credit quality works with those. So it's just kind of under, important to understand to start off with the distinction between commercial banking, which is what you would normally think of when you think of as a bank and investment banking, which is increasingly becoming more of most banks' business these days. Yeah, exactly right. So, you know, key thing here is it's important for investors to not only understand, you know, where a bank is generating its revenue from, from, but also understanding the makeup of those revenue streams, as Matt was talking about, consumer banking versus investment banking, foreign versus domestic, um, and really understanding you know, how they differ in respect to one another. Um, and Matt alluded to it a bit, too. Of course, when it comes to looking at how the banks make money, how they become profitable, You'll also want to know, you know, just how good are they at lending money to those that aren't at a risk of default, um, and that is a, a real key area in terms of uh, the quality of their loan portfolios, especially on the commercial side. Um, so, with that being said, let's dive into how the four big banks make their money. Let's start with the uh, big behemoth here, Matt. Let's talk about J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, which for our listeners, they are scheduled to release earnings before opening bell on Friday, July the 13th. This is the largest bank of the big four by assets and really, in all respects, has been firing on all cylinders. Matt, let's talk a bit about their bread and butter business and how they make money. Yeah, if you were just looking for, regardless of valuation, if you were looking for just a best-in-breed bank, it's really tough to make the case against J.P. Morgan right now. Uh, as Shannon mentioned, they are the biggest of the of the four, 
and they've consistently grown since the financial crisis. They didn't do that poorly in the financial crisis, first of all. They've grown well since the financial crisis. They've pretty much been scandal-free. Um, and the growth continues. They continue to put up impressive numbers. Um, just uh, to quote one number, uh, their loan portfolio grew by 8% year over year in the most recent quarter. Um, they're benefiting really big from things like tax reform. They Their investment banking division is doing really, really well. They actually have the number one marking share in global investment banking fees for the first quarter. So JP Morgan is kind of the best in breed. It's kind of like, I guess, the, the apple of the tech world is kind of JP Morgan of banking. They're kind of, if you want a bank that's really big, really good at what they do, and is just growing rapidly and you know doing everything right, JP Morgan's probably the one you want to look at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in addition to just growing in just about every area possible, just to dig into the specifics from last quarter, uh, Matt, you mentioned you know the core loan portfolio growing eight percent. Deposits also grew six uh, percent, um, and this was all while maintaining the quality of its loan portfolio, which is huge. Um, you saw the provision for credit losses actually declined eleven percent year over year, and the percentage of non-performing assets were also down seven percent. So, what that that really means from an investing perspective is that J.P. Morgan is growing responsibly um, and can really grow quite impressively. There's not much to, to not like about J.P. Morgan. Um, another thing that's really interesting is their efficiency ratio. And um, basically what that is, it's uh, the efficiency ratio is a quick and easy measure of a bank's ability to turn basically its resources into revenue. We love it when we see a bank's efficiency ratio under 50%. That's awesome. But under 60% is pretty good, too. JP Morgan last quarter was right there in the sweet spot at uh, 56%. That was actually the lowest among the big four. Um, also, in terms of profitability, um, a couple of other metrics to be aware of. JP Morgan had a 15% return on equity. For listeners that aren't as familiar with that, it's basically a ratio that investors use to measure the amount of a company's income returned as shareholders' equity. And for us, when it comes to bank stocks, it's great when you see at least a 10% return on equity. So, really impressive to actually see JP Morgan at 15% return on equity last quarter. Um, and also, return on assets was 1.37%. Uh, return on assets really just shows how profitable a bank is relative to its total assets and how efficient management is at using its assets to generate earnings. Generally speaking, we do like to see uh, ROA um, at least 1%, 1.37% is even better. Yeah, and um, all three of those numbers were, like you said, by far the best out of the big four. Um, efficiency ratio in particular, for the, these big banks, it's really tough to hit that 50% number that you were stating just because they have so much overhead in terms of, I mean, their branch networks for one thing. Um, but they have to invest so much money just to be able to keep up with some of the um, new internet-based banks. It's it's really hard for them to get their expenses down. I, for a big kind of brick-and-mortar-based bank, I always like to see under 60%. So by that metric, J.P. Morgan is really performing well for such a big institution. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so, yeah, looking ahead to uh, earnings, 
would love to see uh, that efficiency ratio continue to come down. Um, and Matt, you mentioned internet banks, and uh, I, I came across this last week, and I said I've got to talk about it. But uh, J.P. Morgan just launched an online bank for millennials named Finn. Um, I don't know about you, Matt, but whoever is in charge of the naming conventions for a lot of these mobile-based uh, apps, I must say, please let me in that seat, because <laughs> I don't think you get much worse than the name Finn, and that's Finn with two N's, by the way. Um, but basically, what Finn is, it's truly a mobile, no-fee checking and savings bank for millennials, and you're talking about deposits by phone. You can even write a check by phone automatic savings, spending trackers, etc. So it's got a lot of the bells and whistles, although the interface looks pretty basic. But what's interesting about this particular launch for Finn is that you see JP Morgan strategically positioning itself to grab market share in areas where there is no JP Morgan Chase bank branch, which I think is really interesting. So uh, it actually rolled out in St. Louis, where they don't have any banks, and they're looking to continue to expand across the U.S. Um, so we'll really be looking to see how this competes with some of those other internet-based banks as well. That's true. It's it's really interesting to point out that, including the big four, there are very few banks, if any, that are in all over the U.S. So this can definitely help broaden their reach. And what Internet-based banking does, it also dra- dramatically cuts down on a bank's costs. Not only do they not have to you know, build branches in those markets you mentioned that they're not in, but they save money on things like I mean, paper costs, employees. They say um, a check deposited through a mobile app costs a bank roughly one-tenth of what a teller-assisted deposit costs. So this ultimately can provide big cost advantages to banks and kind of help level the playing field with some of these smaller up-and-comers that are offering you know free checking free savings better interest rates than everybody else because they don't have to pay for branches so this can kind of help jp morgan and in time some of the other big banks get a get a much more competitive advantage against these smaller players yeah absolutely and speaking of you know just technology and even more so just being impressed. Um, That actually brings us to our second bank, which is Bank of America. They'll be reporting earnings on July the 16th. And uh, I have to say, for me, Bank of America is probably one of the most impressive turnaround stories since the financial crisis. Matt, can you talk a little bit, bit more about why that is and really how they're making their money? Absolutely. I mean, in terms of these big four, there were kind of two categories they were in. You had J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, who made it through the financial crisis pretty much unscathed. I mean, they had their issues, but for the most part, they were pretty healthy and definitely emerged stronger than they went in uh, through mergers and acquisitions and things like that. And then there were the banks that kind of did really poorly because they had a ton of risky assets on their balance sheet, and that was Bank of America and Citigroup. Uh, Bank of America has done by far, by far the best job of improving itself since the crisis. Um, So just to kind of give you a number, Bank of America put out a 10.8% return on equity in the first quarter. That would have been unheard of a few years ago. Granted, tax reform helped a little bit with that. But for the most of the past decade, Bank of America has not been profitable, let alone putting up numbers like that. So um, management's done a great job of turning it around. They've actually beat the 10% and one... um, 10% return on equity benchmark and 1% return on assets benchmark for the first time in years. 
their efficiency ratio is down to 60%, which is, like I said, kind of what I look for for banks, which is even better than Wells Fargo is, as we're getting to in a little bit. To say that Bank of America was more efficient than Wells Fargo a few years ago would have been a crazy statement. But Bank of America has done a great job turning itself around. Um, management team has been great about embracing technology. They've really emerged as a technological leader. Um, they've won number one mobile app out of the big four bank, out of pretty much all U.S. banks, actually, a few times. Um, I think Global Finance Magazine was the one that gave them that award. But anyway, um, don't quote me on that. They've done a great job of embracing technology. I think about 25% of their transactions are now come through their mobile app, which saves them a ton of money. It's allowed them to decrease their branch structure quicker than all the other big competitors and really just kind of decrease expenses, improve efficiency, and management's done such a great job. And just kind of the way I would sum that up, JP Morgan is the tried and true leader that has been doing everything right all along and is really just a well-run bank that's if you want the industry leader, that's who you go for. Bank of America is actually in the very late late innings of a great turnaround story. So if you want a stock that's, as we'll, we'll discuss valuation in a minute, if you want a company that's still valued like an up-and-comer but is really starting to look like one of the best players in the industry, Bank of America is the one you want to look at. Yeah, I totally agree with you there, Matt. Um, and we'll talk about uh, valuation, but I can already tell you Bank of America is one of my top picks. J.P. Morgan fairly easy uh, to, to give a green light for, but really love what B of A is doing. Um, addition, you know, for me, moving forward, things I'll be looking at is really to continue to see Bank of America really focus on expense, expense management even more, especially with the technology that they are rolling out. Um, 60% efficiency is good. It's headed in the right direction. Would love to see that even lower as they roll out new uh, technology. But also, too, Bank of America has a higher than average concentration on non-interest bearing deposits. So, in a rising rate environment, uh, Bank of America actually stands to benefit more than some of the others as rates rise. So, I'll be uh, certainly uh, tapped into that for the bank, and to you know, with the Fed, Fed's hinting at one more rate hike in the second half of 2018 plus the likelihood of at least three rate hikes come 2019. I'm really curious to see how that plays out for Bank of America moving forward. Yeah, Bank of America actually just came out and said that um, for a 100 basis point, that's a one percentage point increase in the, the yield curve, that they were expecting a $3 billion increase in profit for every you know 1% interest rate increase. So that could be a big catalyst going forward. Um, you mentioned the non-interest deposits, just to kind of put a number behind that. Bank, out of Bank of America's $1.3 trillion deposit base, $450 billion of that is non-interest bearing. Just to kind of compare that, that's more than double what Citigroup has. So Bank of America has, is in a great position to benefit as interest rates rise more so than the other banks. Absolutely. So lots to love with, with B of A there. Uh, with that, let's actually dive into our third bank, Citigroup. So they are reporting earnings on July the 13th. Matt, what can you tell us about how Citi does business? Well, Citigroup, I mentioned that Citigroup and Bank of America were kind of in the same pool coming out of the financial crisis. They both kind of got crushed just because of some bad assets on their balance sheet. While Bank of America has done a great job of rebounding, Citigroup has done an okay job of rebounding. Um, I would call them the riskiest of the big four. That's 
kind of to just put that in context, though, because the others, I think, are, you know, kind of rock solid banks right now. Um, Citigroup, there's two things kind of that investors need to know. One, they're still kind of working out all what they call the legacy assets on their balance sheet. That's still a pretty big portion of their balance sheet. It's gotten much better over the years, but it's still it's still there. And Citigroup is by far, by far, by far the most internationally exposed of the big four, not even close to the others. Um, just to kind of give you an idea, uh, 53% of their deposit base is international. Um, JP Morgan, which a lot of people think of as a pretty international bank, has only 18% of international deposits. Bank of America, 6%. So it's they're very internationally exposed, especially to some emerging markets, some markets that are kind of not doing quite as well as the U.S. right now. So that's where a lot of the risk comes from. Um, in terms of their business, they are pr structured pretty much the same as J.P. Morgan and Bank of America in terms of being a combination of commercial bank and investment bank, pretty much in the same proportions. 44% uh, of their revenue comes from consumer banking, while 52% comes from investment banking and kind of institutional sources. So in terms of profitability, as I mentioned, they've done a decent job of picking up their profitability. You know, they're profitable, but not quite as good as Bank of America. Uh, return on equity is 9.7% for the most recent quarter. That's shy of the 10% benchmark you want to see. Return on assets is 0.91%, short of that 1% benchmark. But Citigroup's done a great job of becoming efficient. They run at a 58% efficiency ratio, which is actually the second best of the big fours to J.P. Morgan. So it's kind of a mixed bag when it comes to the profitability and efficiency results. They've done a good job of rebounding, but there's still some big risk factors investors need to take into account before jumping into Citigroup. Yeah, I totally agree. I think uh, you, you hit the nail on the head with a mixed bag. Uh, for me, heading into earnings, um, love that they are at that 58% efficiency ratio. Like the others, would love to see continued expense management. Would love to see, too, if Citi can hit that 10% return on equity. Um, I will say, you mentioned that uh, they hit 9.7% in uh, Q1 of this year. That was actually compared to 7.4% in the year prior. So, definitely heading in the right direction. We'll see if they can uh, finally get above that 10% threshold. Um, and also, too, you know, margins have been under pressure for the bank for a while. I'll also be watching that as well. Um, with that being said, let's actually talk about our last stock. Um, Michael Douglas and I have chatted about this stock as well. We call it the problem child, um, and that's probably uh, no better term for it. Matt, let's talk about Wells Fargo. Can you tell us more about the business? And really, the burning question that I think most investors want to know is, have they finally turned a corner? Sure. Well, we'll start with the business. Uh, Wells Fargo is the only one of the big four that is pretty much purely a commercial bank as in they don't really engage in any investment banking activities. Even though they're such a big institution, their balance sheet kind of looks like that of just a small savings and loan, just with much bigger numbers. Um, so they're primarily a commercial bank, and on paper it looks pretty good. They're pretty, they're profitable. Return on equity is 12.3%. Um, return on assets, 1.26%. So they're exceeding their benchmarks. Everything looks good in that respect. But... If you followed the financial news at all over the past couple of years, you know Wells Fargo's had some problems. Uh, they had their big fake account scandal, which came to light in, in September 2016. 
where um, they opened, it turns out, over 3 million unauthorized accounts, um, over 5,000 Wells Fargo employees were to try to meet sales goals, kind of behaved very badly. Um, and since then, we've kind of seen a string of kind of, I call them mini scandals, but they're really not that many. Um, they were overcharging people for mortgages. They were charging people for auto loan, for insurance on auto loans that really wasn't necessary. Um, I was actually one of the people who got a, a notice that I was going to have to pay Wells Fargo auto insurance when I already had insurance somewhere else. Um, it was a pain, but I cleared it up. But a lot of customers didn't really just kind of took them at, at their word that they needed this insurance. Um, so Wells Fargo had a lot of bad stuff going for it. But I kind of think the, the thing that makes me say they're not out of the woods yet to be clear, they're doing a great job of trying to restore their image. Um, their annual report this year was actually called Rebuilding Trust. That was the title. Um, and you've probably seen some of the commercials, Wells Fargo reestablished in 2018. Um, so they're doing a great job of trying to clean up their image, make it clear to the public that their old ways are behind them. But the thing that really keeps me from saying they've turned the corner is that the Federal Reserve gave them, slapped them with this gigantic penalty that's never been done before that says essentially they can't grow until they've had a, you know, shown substantial improvement was how the Fed put it. First of all, what does substantial improvement mean? That's, still, that's a very vague term. Um, it's, there's no clear timetable when they will be allowed to grow, when the Fed will lift that penalty. But the second thing, this is a bank that's not allowed to grow at, a, at arguably the best growth environment for banks in decades. So... Wells Fargo on paper looks like they're doing okay. Um, growth, they're not doing great. First quarter, um, they actually lost some, uh, their loan portfolio shrank, their deposit base shrank a little bit, revenues went down, while all the others grew in those areas. So, but, but like I said, they're not allowed to grow right now, so that probably has something to do with it. Um, Wells Fargo is still great asset quality they do a great job of risk management kind of always have that's why they made it through their financial crisis in such great shape and were able to kind of scoop up wachovia during the financial crisis which was a game changer for the bank but they behaved very badly um they got called on it and they're still not out of the woods i would need much more clarity from the federal reserve before i could give my endorsement to this stock even though warren buffett has it's interesting to point out he said that it will be the best performer of the big four banks over the next decade. So take that for what it's worth. But some of us clearly disagree. Yeah, I mean, hard to argue when the Feds cap your growth in terms of being a real good investment opportunity, right? So, so I'm with you on that. I think Wells Fargo, um, the main concern for me is at what point that you brought it, Matt, is you know substantial improvement actually achieved in the eyes of the Fed? What does that look like? And then, to um, will Wells Fargo be able to regain the trust um, of really of its customer base enough to say that it can now comfortably grow and grow um, over the long term and sustainably? Too many question marks on this stock for me, but uh, we'll have to wait and see if uh, Buffett's words hold true. So with that, um, Matt, we've talked about the four big banks. Uh, looking at it, three out of the four doing well, winning where it matters most. Um, you'd actually expect to see the market rewarding many of these bank stocks year to date, but it's actually been kind of an interesting year. Can you talk a little bit more about that and really where these banks fall valuation-wise? 
Sure. Um, well, yeah, like you said, all four of them have actually gone down for the year. Um, JP Morgan's pretty flat, but the rest, uh, Bank of America's lost 2%. Wells Fargo's down 6% this year. Some of that could be because of the, the Fed's penalty I just mentioned was imposed in February. Uh, Citigroup's down 8%. A lot of that's due to their international exposure. So these have not performed well. Banking, uh, the financial industry, I think a lot of it's because they've performed so well over the past few years um, in kind of the lead up to tax reform, the lead up to rising interest rates. So it's kind of almost like they all that was priced in a little bit. So that's why they've underperformed this year. Um, in terms of valuation, there's kind of two things I'd like to highlight. One, the price to earnings multiple, while still useful, doesn't really tell you the whole story. Um, for the most part, these banks trade in pretty much the same price to earnings range. Um, Citigroup's a little cheaper just because of the risk involved, but the rest are generally around 14 to 15 times earnings. And the real thing you want to look at is book value. Um, banks are <clears throat> generally trade at a multiple of their assets depending on how profitable they are. So that's kind of how you can tell what you're getting for your money or what kind of quality you're getting for your money. Just to kind of put that in context, uh, JP Morgan is the most the, the high, most highly valued of the four, trades for just about 1.6 times its book value. Um, Bank of America is 1.2 times book value. Uh, Wells Fargo is actually almost as much as JP Morgan, 1.55 times its book value, just because of its high asset quality that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Citigroup's actually trading for below its book value. If that tells you anything about the risk you're taking on by buying that stock, it's about 96% of its book value. And then you can even go a step further and look at what's called tangible book value, which only includes the assets that could really be readily sold and you can really easily value. It excludes things like goodwill adjustments, um, you know, things like that. So looking at it that way, Wells Fargo is actually the most expensive of the four at 2.1 times its tangible book value or 2.1 times the value of its tangible assets on its balance sheet. Um, then it goes down from there. JP Morgan's 1.95, Bank of America 1.7 times its tangible book, and Citigroup's just about 1.1 times its tangible book. So a big difference in those values that you really wouldn't see just by looking at the price to earnings multiple. So it's really important to take that extra step when looking at these bank stocks to kind of because the price to book and price to tangible book will really give you a feel for how much investors are willing to pay for these banks' assets, how well they generate profit on them generally dictates how valuable they're going to be from price to book. And that's the metric you want to watch to see when it's a good time to buy. Um, for example, if you love Bank of America, you might say, okay, I'll buy Bank of America if it's trading for less than its book value, which has happened many times in the past. So. That's kind of the better metric than price to earnings that investors want to look at. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, of course, throughout this episode, we've been talking a lot about different bank metrics, what you should be looking for, um, and to to your point, Matt, talking about you know price to earnings ratio versus price to book, and even looking at um, tangible book value. For any listeners out there that uh, really want an in-depth overview on those metrics, how to calculate them, how to compare them, we've actually got two really great resources. The first of which is uh, uh, an article entitled, Your Complete Guide to Investing in Bank Stocks, 
really great for beginners and also to uh, what we call is really the bank stock bible around here how i analyze a bank stock um, is another one if you are at all interested and uh, snagging uh, a copy of those, checking them out electronically, just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Again, that's industryfocus at fool.com, and we'll get those to you. So to sum it all up, we've talked about the four big banks, Matt. You know my favorite right now is Bank of America. What's yours? I am Bank of America, I got to say. I wish I could be kind of unique and go against you in there, but I've owned the Bank of America since right after the financial crisis. I wish the stock was still trading at the $10 per share I bought it at. But there's really, just as far as the valuation compared with how well they're doing and how well they're growing and and managing their, it's really hard to pick one of the others. I will say though, if you want to take more of a gamble on a kind of up and coming bank that is trading really cheaply, Citigroup's probably worth a look. Um, and if you want, the, like I said, the best in breed, J.P. Morgan, I'd avoid Wells Fargo for the moment. But Bank of America is my clear favorite out of the four. Nice, nice. So you've heard it from us here. Great ideas, great food for thought. That's it for this week's financial show. Uh, this month, The Motley Fool is turning 25. That's right, it's The Fool's 25th anniversary. To celebrate, everything in the podcast swag store is 25% off. Just go to shop.fool.com and load up on all your podcast essentials between now and the end of July. And finally, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Ann Henry. For Matt Frankel, I'm Shannon Jones. Thanks for listening and Fool on!